Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Hi, everyone. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. It is absolutely vital for survivors in our communities to have the right to bodily autonomy respected and honored and upheld by the law and the Constitution. As we continue to move forward to work to dismantle rape culture and violence in our communities, it is absolutely vital that we support and reinforce and strengthen any protections that we have for bodily autonomy in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. Today, I'm going to be sharing an interview with you about Kelly Johnson. Kelly Johnson is a community engagement professional, writer, fundraiser, and public speaker. In 2012, she received her master's in public history with a concentration in the cultural history of the United States from American University. She has worked in nonprofit development and communications for the last seven years and continues to engage in different kinds of speaking opportunities to help educate the public on what it means to be a survivor, the far-reaching impact of trauma, and how that affects our society as a whole. In this interview, you're going to hear her personal story about what happened to her and how she recovered, but also how the impact of the violence that happened to her rippled out from her and affected her relationships, affected those people in those relationships and affected their lives, and also saw some systemic shift occur around her and the systems that she interacted with as a direct result of the violence. What I think is so important about these conversations is that we often engage in the way that we talk about sexual assault or trauma, even in general, as an individual issue, that the individual who survived trauma is responsible for getting recovery, for getting better, and that that individual is also the only one who is primarily impacted by the effects of the trauma, and that nothing else really happens around them, that this is an individual issue. Part of why that's a problem for us to discuss in that way is that also interferes with us really creating more systemic change and systemic shifts that look at how our system, our cultural system, our society as a whole, not only contributes to and reinforces violence in our culture, but also is impacted and changed by the violence that occurs in our culture. And so when we are not enacting those social changes and repair for 
our system as a whole, our social systems, our communities as a whole, we're missing a huge part of the way that violence impacts us and that we are ignoring the changes that are happening in our communities and in our social structure as well as a result of violence. And so what Kelly's story does is really highlights just from using her story as an example and also her education and knowledge that she shares with people about exactly how that system change can happen and why it's so important for us to engage not just individual interventions, but social community interventions as well. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be part of the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation. I think we have some really important things to discuss. And thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to share a little bit about yourself first? Sure. My name is Kelly Johnson. I have been working in community engagement and nonprofit development and communications for the last seven years. Awesome. So would you like to share more about yourself and your story today? Sure, I, I'd be happy to. I mean, my my experience with sexual violence was going on 12 years ago now. I was 23 at the time, and I I was leaving my apartment to go to work. It was a three-hour commute to get to work. I was living in D.C. and working out in Virginia, doing that reverse commute. And I would leave my apartment every day at 3.45 so that I could make it to a van pool, so then I could make it to work by 6.30. It was not ideal. It was something that I'd been doing for about six months at that point while I was actively looking for any job that was closer to me than that. But I'd gotten up, I'd gone through my normal morning routine, and I opened up my door to walk out into the hallway of my apartment building, and there was an individual crouched in front of the door. He stood up very quickly and said hello and then kept walking. So I told myself that he had just dropped something and the timing had been unfortunate, but a coincidence, and he had walked into another apartment across from the elevator bank. So I went over to the elevators and I, I hit the button. And shortly after I hit the button and the door opened, he came back out of the apartment and went to the elevator to hold the door open for me. And now I remember just having this, this feeling of, no, something's wrong. Something just wasn't right. So I remember taking my phone out of my pocket and looking down at it and the time being 346 and me just saying, oh, I left something in my apartment. Thanks, but no. And turning around and walking back to go into my apartment and just being very conscious of just everything in my surroundings at that point. And I opened up the door to my apartment and I went to, to go in and he ran for the door. And so he used the door first to, to hit me in the head and then forced his way into the apartment and over the course of the next 15 minutes, I was beaten and then strangled and then raped. And it was, it was a definite out-of-body experience for me. I had gone from just getting ready for work to when that, that door hit me in the head the first time. It kind of felt like my brain had shattered. There were all of these different, very disparate thought processes going on that I can remember very clearly that just didn't feel connected to one another. There was one part of my brain that just was very convinced 
that I was going to wake up and that this was going to be some kind of horrible dream. Another part was I had been sick earlier in the week and I had to call out from work. And I remember thinking very clearly, if you have to call out again, they may stop believing you. Then having another part of my brain just very sure that I was not making it through the morning without being raped and that I might not make it through the morning at all. And then another part that was just trying to come up with different tactics, like what can you do in this moment to try to change the course of these events? All of these different thought processes going on that just felt like all of a sudden my brain was filled with like 20 other people and I couldn't quite connect with with any of them and was just trying to figure out what was going on. When he came into the apartment and started hitting me, I started screaming. There was no conscious decision for that. That was just something my body did. And then once it started, it couldn't stop. But that screaming woke my best friend who lived with me. I mean, she went through such a traumatic experience of her own that day and was able to call the police and get them there while he was still in the apartment and while the attack was ongoing. I also found out later, which I didn't realize in the moment, but my keys had been left in the door. I had never even gotten the keys out of them once I'd unlocked the door to come in. About 15 minutes later, the police arrived and they came into the apartment while the attack was still happening. They banged on the door first to announce themselves. And he asked me if there was another way out of the apartment. I lived on the sixth floor. The only other way was was a balcony, which no one could have gotten out of. So he ultimately surrendered to the police and he was arrested there in my apartment. I remember I was, I was laying on the floor of my bedroom when all of these officers came in and kind of trying to pull a blanket down off the bed so that I'd at least be somewhat covered. One officer sat down on the floor next to me. She was a young woman. She asked me what happened. And I remember thinking that I had to say it. If I didn't say he raped me right now, I was just never going to say it because I could already feel like parts of my body kind of closing down. And so I said it. And then she sat on the floor next to me and just cursed for like a solid minute, just a, a string of curses. And I remember that being such a comfort to me, the idea that this stranger, this other woman was sitting next to me and was so angry on my behalf, even though we didn't know each other and we, we would never see each other again. But just having somebody have that initial reaction of just rage on my behalf was extremely comforting to me. And she just sat there on the floor with me while they took him into custody and got him out of the apartment. For a little while, the police wouldn't let my roommate and I be together. First, they wanted to get him out of the apartment. They wanted him fully off the premises before either one of us was moving around. And then they also didn't want to disturb the crime scene that my room was now considered. But once he was gone, they let me come out and my roommate and I were able to be together, which was also very helpful for me. And I remember seeing my roommate's face for the first time. There was an audible click in my head and all of my crying stopped. I had been crying for the duration of the attack. And in that moment when I saw her and when I saw on her face, the trauma that she had experienced, 
something just shifted. All of that stopped. And I got very, very calm. And the shock of it all was also sinking in. When I stopped crying then, it would be about a month before I would cry again. There would be a month where it was just, that was just not a feeling that I was having. But when I came out of the room and we got to be together, I remember saying so many times to her, because we we just stood there and hugged for a few minutes, that we were going to be fine. And I said that a bunch of times. In the moment, it felt very natural. Like after the fact, I know how much the shock was playing into it. And just, I had kind of entered this somewhat robotic state. And they were waiting for the detectives to arrive because they were going to take our statements. And then I would be taken to the hospital. My roommate wanted to call my parents and they didn't want her to because, again, what was nice is that the officers who responded were very good about explaining why they didn't want us to do things. They didn't just say, no, don't do this. They said, we really want you to be able to give a cohesive statement to the detectives. We're afraid if you speak to your parents that that's going to be harder for you to do just because of the emotions of it all. We finally convinced them to let us because I was living in DC and my parents were up in New York. So there was no way my parents were going to arrive at the apartment during our talking to the police or anything like that. So my roommate went to go call them. I could hear as she was talking to them that she was starting to cry a bit. And so I I needed to, to be able to let them hear my voice and for them to know that I was okay. I remember telling the police officer that I would be fine, that I would tell the detectives everything that they needed to know, but I had to go talk to my parents. Going in and taking the phone from my roommate and speaking to my mother. And again, I think I said at least three times, everything was going to be fine. That just kind of became my go-to in that morning. After I spoke with them, they were going to head down from New York. We had gotten them before they had headed to work. So the timing for that worked out well. And then the detectives arrived and there were two detectives. One spoke to myself, one spoke to my roommate, and we kind of went through the whole day. I mean, it felt like a day at that point. It was probably four in the morning. Then I was taken over to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, because of the way that he had beaten my face, the left side of my face had swollen to a point where the doctors were concerned that I was going to lose my left eye which thankfully I didn't, but it was very painful for me to keep my eyes open. So my eyes were closed, but I also was at that point still, despite the the shock sinking in, still very scared. And my roommate went to call our jobs and to call our friends and to do all of that heavy lifting of letting people know what was going on a nurse came into the room that I was in and I couldn't fully open my eyes. And I asked her if she could sit next to me until my roommate came back. And so she just sat there with me and talked to me so that I would know that there was somebody in the room and I wasn't alone and I wasn't in danger. So I had an extreme amount of luck that morning in the people who I dealt with in the immediate aftermath. As I got further into my experience, I I came to understand how that is is such an anomaly of an experience to have that much support from that many different people immediately following something like that, that had happened. It was a very intense morning. It was never going to be a secret because of the way that it had happened, because of the number of people who knew immediately, there was never a chance for me to even think about not disclosing 
what had happened to me. That was something that was different in my experience, but also for me personally, something that I ultimately found helpful in my recovery. That's great. I think that's something that, you know, I've talked with a lot of survivors about is reporting and not reporting. And I mean, by and large, it's always coming back to like, it really is something the survivor should be able to choose. There are stories similar to yours where that choice was by the nature of what happened just wasn't accessible for a number of reasons, how that in and of itself became a part of it. And it sounds like reflecting back for you, you know, not having that choice in front of you and having also the response that you got from people really did help with the recovery. It did. Yeah. And I mean, disclosure is such a personal choice for every survivor. And there are so many valid reasons that people have to either disclose or not to disclose. It was definitely something that ended up just not being a choice for me to make. It's a choice now in terms of when I want to disclose to new people in my life. But for the people who knew me when I was 23, they were all going to know. There was no way around it. It took, I mean, at least from the beginning, I immediately knew who were the people who were going to be of a support to me. And I was lucky that it was the majority of the people who I was closest to in my life. It meant that I didn't have any days that I had to worry about keeping up appearances in any way or presenting as though I was doing okay when I wasn't because people already knew what was going on. I mean, that comes with not keeping up appearances, but working on on how you're feeling. Because one of the things that I was very conscious of and that ended up in some ways being something I used for my recovery was how this impacted all of the people who loved me. This was a trauma that was horrific for me. And it was one that trickled down to every single person who was there for me. One of the things that I found helpful in my recovery was really putting an effort into convincing the people around me that I was going to make it through this because I felt like if I focused on them and if I could convince them, then I could also convince myself of that. Also, if I was focusing on them, it made it easier for me to kind of pick and choose the parts of this that I wanted to process slowly rather than just sitting and focusing on all of it at once, because that felt very overwhelming to me. So if I could direct my focus outward, it just made it a little bit easier to kind of get through the stuff that was happening internally. And that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because I can tell I'm hearing the voices in my mind, and I assume many listeners are as well, that There's pieces of that that our lovely pop culture psychology would love to say, like, you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to worry about everybody else over yourself. You're not supposed to compartmentalize your experiences and you're sharing some of the wisdom around why sometimes we just need to turn away from bullshit like that and do what works for us in the sense that for you and and I think for many people there's a place of survivorship and survival that is just getting through the immediate part and that can be very brief or very long of like, I just have to get through, like my body has to calm down. I have to like still exist in the world. I have to like eat and sleep and do stuff like that. And in order to do that, that sometimes means having to 
have a target for our focus that is not focusing on everything that just happened because we can get psychologically flooded, which would be like the I'm taking in all the moments and everything right now and can actually cause more severe of a psychological injury in that process. And that focusing outward, whether that's focusing on the people around you or focusing on some sort of goal that maybe is totally meaningless or not, and being able to take things piece by piece. And that's how even as therapists, even when we're out of that survival moment and into like recovery time, we talk about how to break things into manageable pieces when we're doing trauma processing work so that people don't get flooded, that you don't have to face everything in this huge tsunami coming at you of emotion and of distress and upset and injury in order to manage it. And that was something that I had noted was I just literally wrote down, everything is going to be fine with how much you, (laughs) you said that. And at first I was just like, you know, we can see that the defense mechanism that's coming up there. And this is what's valuable about what you're sharing is that defense mechanisms are not inherently problematic. They're actually there to help us. And this phrase helped you be able to get through a grueling investigative process that occurred right after that happened when it's highly likely your mind and body were like not wanting to sit and talk to people about what happened and to go through all of the investigations and questions and assessments and exams, but just wanting to get safe. And this reassurance that you're offering yourself, you know, that maybe there is this wise voice letting you know, like, it actually is going to be okay. You're going to get through all of this, how that helped you do these necessary steps that whether you wanted to or not, were going to occur to a certain extent. Like you could have refused to quote unquote, cooperate with police, but that doesn't mean that they were going to leave, you know, and that you were going to get the privacy that you probably really were craving at that moment. So it was kind of like, this is how to get through this as effectively as possible. And this way of engaging with your social supports and network in a way that not only are they coming to your aid, but you're able to connect in this kind of system approach of you're also part of the system. And so the effect of this trauma is not just completely held within you, but it's something that is shared. And then also, so is the healing and so is the recovery. And it sounds like there are a lot of things that just for you very naturally, you were able to do that were really, really effective. Yeah. And I mean, when I think about other people that morning too, I think folks at the hospital were surprised by the amount of people who showed up there. We had a close group of friends from college and they all came and sat in the waiting room. And my cousin came from Baltimore and sat in the waiting room. And then my parents arrived eventually. And at one point they mentioned to me that there were a lot of people out there. They were very conscious of what I needed, which I truly appreciated. They asked me if I wanted them to send people home. And I was like, no, no, that's fine. You can send them all back here. And they said, all of them? And I said, yeah, that that's good. And they're like, okay, how about this? We'll have everyone come back here. But if at any point you are feeling overwhelmed, ask us for a glass of water and we will clear the room. (laughs) And I was like, thank you. That is so nice. And then when my friends came back and then my family, everyone was having very different 
responses. I mean, everyone was just there to be with me and to be whatever I needed. But like one of my friends mentioned, she had changed her outfit three times before she came there because it was just like, you don't know what to do in that situation. What is the appropriate thing to wear to a situation like this? And the one thing she could control, you know? Right. You know, thinking back to what you were just saying about what we're told is the right way to deal with things. I feel like there were so many things that happened in my recovery that any movie or TV show or anything like that I had ever seen would have told me was not the right way of doing things. I mean, one thing that I found extremely helpful for me was a real feeling of anger. And I feel like anger can get a really bad rap sometimes. And I understand it's not something that you want to be controlling your trajectory forever, but it can be a real good motivator. At one point during the actual physical rape, he asked me, who loves you? And in that moment, I was so just gone from my body that I just said, I don't know. And he said, say, I do. And I just repeated that back to him. And I said, I do. And there was like a part of my brain that had not been there with me that like woke up in that moment. And I remember having this kind of overwhelming feeling of anger and also this knowledge that what I had just said was very true, that I loved me and that I might not be able to get through this morning. I might not survive this. He might kill me after this, but this was something he couldn't change. This was something he couldn't impact. And that feeling of love for myself and also that anger that he would ever try to attach an idea of love to what he had done to me really kept me going for a while after that. Like that feeling of my brain being shattered didn't stop after the attack. I would say it was probably about a good month or two before I started feeling any kind of cohesion and much longer than that before it just felt like I was thinking in one way anymore. But we moved into a new apartment shortly after what had happened. It was this very quick one day. We took the cars back and forth a bunch of times. My friends again came out. My parents were there. My best friend's parents were there. And just this real community effort to get us to a new place. Once we got there, I was really out of it. This is different in every state. In the District of Columbia, Unless a person is convicted of a sexual crime, the victim does not have the right to know whether or not they are HIV positive. And so that is different from state to state, those kind of guidelines. So I went on preventative HIV medications the day after the attack because it, it just wasn't a risk I was willing to take. Those medications really level you. They told me that I was on a four-week course of medication and they said after four weeks, your body starts to adjust And so if I had been on it longer, I might've stopped feeling the level of side effects I was feeling. But at that point, I couldn't keep any food down. So I started having to take an additional anti-nausea medication, which knocked me out. It kept me in this very druggy state for a lot of that first month, which was also a feeling that I hated because it felt very, very not safe. I remember sitting on the floor of my new bedroom all of these boxes around me, everything feeling very overwhelming. I could hear my parents unpacking things in the kitchen and my friend was in her room and starting to unpack things. And I was just sitting there on the floor next to my bed thinking that like maybe if I just crawled under the bed and I closed my eyes and I disappeared, everything would be better. 
I was very lucky in that the way my brain is wired, I never felt suicidal. I never wanted to die, but I did have periods where I just didn't want to exist for a little while. I wanted to come back later when everything was over, but for now I would like to not exist. Sitting there and thinking that, and then having this very angry voice in the back of my head kind of take over and be like, get off the ground. You have to get up now. That's all you have to do. You have to stand up. We'll figure out what comes after that. Once you're standing, you're not rolling under the bed. You can't give more than has already been taken from you. So you're going to get up now. That voice being the thing that made me start moving again. So that anger was was really helpful to me. And it was something that I feel like a lot of times in media, you see this premium put on not feeling anger and not feeling those negative emotions and good vibes only and all those different little things that put a premium on positivity to a point where it's harmful. Another thing that for me was helpful and will not be helpful for everybody because everyone's processes are different, but I personally didn't and don't feel any need to forgive the person who did this to me. I don't wish them harm. I don't I definitely don't want what was done to me done to them, which is something that unfortunately a lot of well-meaning people will will say to you if they find out that someone who did this is going to prison. That is not a helpful thing. It's just a reminder that this is a horrible form of dehumanization that is just rampant in our society and that we accept it in some areas of our society. But I don't feel the need to forgive him for what he did. Oh, I see that in so many movies. This idea that a person has truly become the hero when they forgive the person who traumatized them. If that is an important part of someone's healing process, I think that's wonderful for them. I think it's an additional burden that we as a society put on people who go through trauma, that that is like the gold standard to reach for, that you have to get to a point where you say that you have forgiven the person who traumatized you. And that was something I let go of very early and was very helpful to me to let go of that. I love that you're saying that. I think you're offering just a beautiful gift to so many survivors listening right now that were probably really struggling with that because you're right. Like there are so many messages around that we should forgive and that we should offer some sort of grace or compassion towards perpetrators and this whole hurt people, hurt people, you know, he's in pain too. And it's like, No, I'm not the one that needs to be doing any of that work for him. And one of the people that I talk with in an episode goes into some of the misunderstandings about what forgiveness really is, and also how forgiveness is really supposed to be truly living without anger around this, similar to what you're saying of this anger being such a useful emotion in this, and that anger itself is this powerful motivator. It's the fighter that comes up that gets us to fight to live that also gets us to push back against the culture and the society that continues to reinforce and support rapists and rape happening in this culture. And forgiveness is a weird responsibility that we put on survivors of sexual violence. And it also happens in really big ways whenever that is occurring within a family system of needing to forgive the abuser so that the whole family can act as though it didn't happen. And this responsibility and burden being put on the survivor to carry the load of somebody else's problem. 
and how we don't have to get to a place of offering grace or love or compassion or even understanding to somebody who harmed us and how actually there's something really important and valuable in saying that, no, I'm actually worth not doing that. I'm worth prioritizing over this, over forgiveness, over somebody else. Because I know for me, when I experience that forgiveness, the sense is that I'm supposed to be extending a certain level of compassion to somebody who totally decimated my life. And I'm supposed to be like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. I understand you and you get to be free from any kind of like psychic, energetic, emotional consequences of that. And it's like, no, fuck no. I'm never living without consequences of this. Like this will always follow me for the rest of my life. And this will always be a part of my life. Forgiveness and choosing to not forgive doesn't mean that I'm living in bitterness or resentment. Actually choosing not to forgive feels like living in a lot of power, you know, of like, no, like he does not get to walk without this. And I'm not going to be a part of him walking without it. Like we're no longer going to even connect in any kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because I've spoken in a number of different places about what's happened to me. And the thing that people, if they struggle with anything that I say in my speeches, when they come up to talk to me afterwards, the thing they struggle with most is this idea that I don't forgive. For some people, it is something they consider very important for them and That's certainly valid for them, but it's this idea, like they are worried about me because I don't forgive. Choosing not to forgive him doesn't mean that he still has power over my life. It's that I am completely separating myself from this individual. From what you just said, I think it's so true that when you don't forgive and you're open about not forgiving, people think that that is an indication of bitterness or that's an indication of your anger having consumed you when it's just a choice to not take on that accountability as well. And I mean, these are the folks who I think have the best intentions. They're not the people who are looking to blame victims, but who don't even realize that they too have just been conditioned by society to continue to push some of that accountability onto the person who is the victim of the crime. And some of that comes from this idea that we must forgive One thing that I heard from a few different people afterwards was them encouraging me to take a self-defense course. Now, I think self-defense courses are great if people want to take them. And if that makes you feel empowered, that's fantastic. But saying that to somebody in the immediate aftermath of them being sexually assaulted, whether or not people realize it or not, is them saying, you could have avoided this if you'd been more prepared. So be more prepared next time. In my experience, it was an attempt for them to compliment me. And to say that they were impressed by the fact that I was willing to speak out about this, that I was willing to have these conversations and to be very public about my experience. But there was a lot of invoking of God in conversations, whether it was people asking me why God allowed this to happen, or people saying some version of they thought that this had happened to me so that I could make sure that this person was held accountable and it wouldn't happen to other people. And to all of that, I don't believe God let this happen to me. This wasn't a case of divine neglect. I wasn't chosen to suffer this dehumanization so that other people wouldn't. All of the people in this country and in this world who 
every day suffer the dehumanization of sexual violence aren't chosen to because they have been deemed able to rise above it. I mean, God is, is not the one doing any of this. And each time that we phrase things in those way, we take a little bit more of the accountability off the shoulders of the person who makes these choices. I just think that people aren't even fully conscious of how much this has been burned into our bones. At all of these different avenues, we find ways to take a little bit more of that accountability away from the sole person who should be held responsible for it. I'm realizing this is probably the 17th time I've said this. It's like, that's such a wonderful point. I'm so glad you're bringing that up too, because it's one of those things where it's like, I understand why people are saying that. They're trying to make sense of true horror happening in the world without any other explanation, except because a horrible person decided to do it. That is terrifying. Part of like, for me, like it always activates that for me, that shattering of the world where it's like, oh yeah, terrible things happen. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And that's one of the true surrenders or wisdoms that survivors have to go through, whether they want to or not, we end up having to go through it of realizing that truth about the world in our efforts to try to explain it by being like, well, everything happens for a reason. And it's like, yeah, they happened because this person chose to be violent and chose to do something horrifying. That's the reason. It doesn't have to be some sort of divinely intended purpose, especially when people come in and be like, it must be because you're supposed to be doing some sort of work, whether to intervene with this person. I mean, that's horrible. Like, why would any being want to sacrifice my life in order to do that, especially because there are large amounts of people who do not survive this. Right. Right. And they're not sacrificial lambs to some sort of cause. You are definitely a lot more polite because the phrase that came to my mind of like, well, they can just fuck right off. Um, (laughs) You know, that experience of how people grapple with our stories And on one side that, you know, if that happens early on in our recovery can be incredibly painful and silencing and can create more and more obstacles when people come up trying to grapple with their own struggles around hearing our stories. And also on the other side, how when we're through some of our recovery, it it enables us to actually be more effective speakers because we can speak to this and say like, this actually not only is not helpful, but I firmly believe not accurate and not helpful, not just to the survivor, but to our culture as a whole. Like if you want to end sexual violence, you're not going to put this on the shoulders of a divine being. You're going to put it on the shoulders of the perpetrator and that perpetrator's community, which by the way, is also ours, where our community reinforces perpetrators. And when we carry that responsibility, we're more likely to be able to change what's happening as opposed to just acting as though it's some freak anomaly that we were supposed to somehow spiritually intervene with. It just also feels like it's just another violation of consent. Like you were given some sort of divine mission without any of your consent or any communication to you about this. And I think that's also really important because Many people understand that like survivors make meaning out of their recovery. And it's not about saying like, okay, like this had to happen to me in order for this to happen. And so therefore I don't regret that I was raped. It's kind of like, for me, it's like, if I could live life without rape, I absolutely would do it. 100%. (laughs) 
100%. There's no question. And maybe there are some people that are kind of in a different space around accepting things. But I don't think that rape is the only way for me to have grown this way. The way that I grew this way is because of this is the interaction of me and my community and all the things that I had as part of it dealing with a trauma. It wasn't here because rape happened. So many survivors do make that kind of meaning. And it sometimes gets misunderstood as people saying like, yeah, I'm grateful for trauma that happened to me. It's like, no, I'm grateful actually for recovery that happened to me that I learned from, but I definitely probably would have learned this from anything that would have happened in life. And I would definitely not choose to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm thinking a lot about both the way people try to make sense of things that they're just not going to be able to make sense of, and also just the victim blaming culture in general. But I frequently think about it as kind of the horror movie mentality. Like we've all sat and we've watched movies and somebody's walking up dark stairs while ominous music plays in the background. And you sit there and you think like, leave the house, you idiot. Like there's no way I'd be this dumb. So this will never happen to me because I wouldn't make those choices. I think what people would like, whether they admit this or not, they would like victims to be culpable for this. Because if we can push some of that accountability onto the people who suffer from these crimes, then people who haven't suffered from them can distance themselves from it. They can say, well, that's never going to happen to me. It creates this false sense of security that actually leads to a very real sense of danger by ignoring that these things are happening, by ignoring the root causes in our society as to why these things flourish in such a big way here. I mean, I think the current numbers are that every 68 seconds an American is sexually assaulted. I mean, that is so many people every single day. If we have to actually look at the root causes for that and deal with that, that is a much bigger job. And that is people really having to grapple with the fact that it doesn't matter what you do. You can still be impacted by this. You can be going to work. You can be going out on a date. You can be getting on a bus. For a lot of people, you can simply be existing in your own home. And this is something that you're going to have to deal with. And that is a very scary thing to accept. And it's also a very heavy lift to understand that once you accept it, you have to start working towards changing that for everybody. It's a lot easier to say, oh, no, no, that person was just dumb. And so they did the wrong thing and that happened to them and that's too bad, but it's really their fault. It's just this desperate attempt to make yourself feel safe in a world where you're not really safe. I understand that impulse, but it's it's one that ultimately not only hurts the people around you, but also hurts you, whether or not you're aware of it. That's an excellent point for sure. We're coming to the end of our episode today, and I know we're going to have another episode where we get to share some more awesome wisdom from you. So thank you so much for all of this. But to close up, do you have any words or final offerings for survivors listening to this or allies listening to this that you'd like to close on? Yeah. I mean, for survivors, I think the biggest thing that I I would love people to keep in mind is that everyone's experiences are going to be really different. And it's great to find communities where people have gone through similar things as you so that you know that you are not alone in that. 
But it's also important, even within those communities, never to judge yourself based on anybody else's progress, because it's just two fully different paths that you're on. I know for myself, there are points where I've looked at people and I've thought, well, I definitely can't do that. And that can make me feel a little bit uncomfortable in where I am and how far I've progressed. But it's entirely possible that people would look at something that I can do and that's something that they have difficulty with. It's just totally different paths that we're all on. Somewhat parallel because we've gone through some similar things together and we can be supportive of each other. But just understanding that what works for someone else may not work for you and vice versa. I think for allies, one important thing is just to meet survivors where they're at. It's great for you to want to be there for people and for you to want to help them in their healing. But a lot of times the reality is just that is not going to be within your power. The best thing that you can do is just ask them what they need from you and to try to provide that. And then if they don't need anything in particular from you at that point, just letting them know that you are there if they ever do is a huge help. But their healing journey is not something that you can do for them, no matter how much you love them. And sometimes by trying to fix things without knowing the ins and outs of what is internally going on for them, that could also be somewhat harmful. So just being there in whatever capacity that they need most and really letting them take the lead in that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for being here today and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.